Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. Which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God hath also given them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves." who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burning are burned, rather, in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, and whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his word. Let us unite together in prayer. Father, we thank you that we can come this morning to fellowship, to praise your name. We have felt your presence with us through the music and the prayers that have been offered this morning. We pray that you would open our hearts now to understand your truth, for in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Oft times we think of God as a God of love. And really he is that. He is a God of love. But if he is a God of love, then he must also be a God of hate. For love, on one hand, simply points out the evil that is on the other. If there is good, 
then in this world there is evil, and if one should love good, then one should hate evil. Therefore, if God loves good, he absolutely hates evil. It follows in logical thinking that God must not only love, but he must also hate. We say many times, or ask the question many times from the pulpit and in our teaching, are you saved? That seems like a stupid question upon first utterance. From what must be the logical question? Saved from what? And I have had people actually ask me that question. When I say, are you saved? They will say, am I saved from what? And then I am on the spot to explain from what am I talking about. I would like to suggest this morning that when we ask the question, are you saved, that we are not saying, are you saved from hell, but rather we are asking the question, are you saved from the wrath of God? And that's the beginning of the scripture that we read for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, let's break that down just a bit. First of all, sin has its natural consequences. We all know that if we sin, we're going to pay. Somewhere in our life, our sins are going to find us out, as the scripture says, and we're going to pay the price for the sin that we have committed. We've all talked today about the penalty that we're paying for something in that we don't have any rain. And without going into a long dissertation of this very episode, I think we can say that the lack of rain that we have on our land today is a direct result of our own sinning somewhere in our lives as a collective body not as individuals perhaps, but as a, as a nation and perhaps even as a world, the natural consequences of our failure to recognize the delicate balance in the environment has now caused us to pay the penalty. And so we see the wrath of God as a natural consequence of those things that we do or do not do. We know that anyone who gets drunk, for example, is going to somewhere down the line pay the consequences of that in normal life. We know a person who hates will find that he will pay the consequences of his hate for it's going to eat a hole in him somewhere. If not in his stomach, certainly in his heart or in his mind. And so we know the, the normal consequences of sin. But... What God is referring to here, the writer to Romans talking about the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, is a specific revelation when God intervenes in the lives of people and he becomes angry with the way they live, he hates what he sees, and as a consequence we pay the penalty as a direct result of God saying that's enough, I'm going to interfere, you're going to pay. There's two different kinds of wrath of God that we're talking about. That which is natural, that comes as a result, and he simply allows the natural processes to take place in our lives, and we, then we end up uh, reaping what we have sown. The other is when he actually 
intentionally and with a purpose reaches down and puts a consequence upon us for our wayward way of life. Why does he do it? Well, the scripture says, whom he loveth, he chasteneth. And very likely this is our chastening to bring us back into line in order that we might not go so far astray. But I want you to look at the last portion of that verse 18. The wrath of God comes upon whom? And he says, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, but the last phrase I want you to notice, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. This is one of the reasons, this particular passage is one of the reasons that we need to read from other, some other translation besides King James. Because it's long since left us as to what these words mean. So let me put it in modern day terms, the last phrase. He is bringing his wrath against people who hold, I'm going to change words now, who suppress the truth by unrighteousness. Now notice what he said. God will not stand by and let people suppress his truth by living unrighteously. He will intervene. He will not simply allow the normal processes of our sins to catch up with us and we be punished as a consequence. There are some cases in which he is going to intervene. And he says he will intervene and his wrath will come from heaven to earth upon those who suppress the truth by living unrighteously. All right. Now, that as a background. We're all sinners and we know it. There's not a one of us here but what is a sinner. There are two kinds of sinners. There are saved sinners and there are lost sinners. I don't know of any other kind. There are none in between. You're either on your way to heaven as a sinner saved by grace or you're on your way to hell as a sinner lost because of, of one's unwillingness to accept the grace of God that would change one from a lost sinner to a saved sinner. There are the sins that we commit. We know that we commit sins. We all have committed sins. We have lied. We have stolen. We have cheated. We have had either mental or physical uh, committing of sexual sins. We have had every kind of thing we have done. There probably is not a sin in this world but what is represented in this congregation this morning. Somebody has done it. But there's another set of sins. And that's the sins of not doing things that we ought to do. Now these are the ones that we forget about. And we say that guy sinned by doing something that is wrong. I can't remember saying this guy sinned because of not doing something he ought to have done. And this is probably more important in the eyes of God for his people than even those that we physically commit or those that we just ignore, the things that we ought to do that we don't do. All right, let's go on. Verse 19. All men know there's a God. I said something about this recently, and I want to expand on it a little bit this morning. 
as far as I have been able to determine in my study of history, in reading all that I have done, I have never run upon, come across, a group of people, a tribe, a nation, but what acknowledge there is a God. Our missionaries, when they go into a foreign country to do missionary work, never have to convince anybody there's a God. That's already self-evident, and people accept the fact there is a God. Now, our missionaries must explain, as Paul had to do on Mars Hill, which God we are talking about. But they believe in a supremacy of a, a God. They also believe in sin and the consequences of sin. There is not a nation nor a tribe of people, I have said, but what believe in God. There is not a nation or a tribe of people, but what also believe in sin and know that sin will be paid for. And so our missionaries don't have to explain what sin is and that there's a consequence for sin. They don't have to do that. People already automatically know that there is a sin. And how did they come to this conclusion that there is a God, there is sin, and there's consequences of sin? God is a God of wrath, most people believe. Even in foreign nations. A God of wrath. And if you don't live right, you will pay the consequences. It comes from the fact that in nature, anybody can look at this world and know that there is a God. This foolishness that we hear all the time about evolution is absolutely in the rational mind of anybody. It has to be put aside, not accepted. If it is possible for us to have evolved from whatever, that mucky stuff along some seashore over in the Near East and brought us to where we are today, there ought to be some evidences in science in this world where the same thing is happening today and there is not a scientist that has been able to put his finger on one incident where this thing of evolution is taking place. If it's possible for things to evolve out of nothing, then it ought to be possible for me to see an automobile just suddenly come out of the muck of the ground and appear right there before me. Do any of you believe that it's possible for an automobile in all of its complexities to come out of a, a, a little ditch out here where there might be a little water and we could go outside the church this morning and see it evolving, coming out of the ditch and sitting there with the motor running and gas in the tank all ready to go? Anybody believe that? That's a whole lot easier to believe than the complexity of my body or your body or this whole world or the entire universe could have evolved like that. The people of this world can, by their own rational mind, look at the world and know there has to be a mastermind. Somebody supreme. And that's somebody we call God. Well, the problem is, we can know God. We may not know Him very complete. Look at verse 19, the very first phrase of it, because that which may be known of God, I'm going to change words again, is made known to them. 
that which may be made known of God is made known. We do not know God complete, and we shall never know God complete, but that which God wants us to know is here. He's not hiding. He isn't hiding at all. Our knowledge is simply incomplete. And because of that, in verse 20, he says there is no excuse. There is no excuse. There will be nobody excused on the day of judgment by saying, I didn't know there was a God. Nobody. Well, what's the problem then? Well, the problem begins in verse 21. When in verse 21 he says, they knew, when they knew God, now assuming all people know God, which I believe, they knew God, but they glorified him not as God. There's the problem. People know God, but they won't glorify him as God. They refuse to give God the place that he is supposed to have. This is how mythology has come along and idolatry. People have recognized there is a need for a supreme being, and so they create one that they call God. The Hebrews made a golden calf, said, This is God. And Moses ground up that golden calf and sprinkled on the water to drink and made him drink it. This is God. How ridiculous can we be if a golden piece of uh, something that looks like a calf can be created by somebody's hands and set there before them, and this is supposed to be the God that created the universe when it came out of the makings of people's hands? You see, what man is doing is making himself supreme to God. The big eye gets into the picture. We do not say we believe in mythology. We don't say we believe in idolatry. And not a one of us would ever admit to believing in idolatry. And you don't know anybody, I suspect, who believes in all those Greek myths who say there were all of these gods who did all these things and fought and married and, and had children and all the things that mythology says that they did. None of us will admit, I'm sure, to knowing anybody who worships some idol set up someplace and falls down on her knees before it. But all of us will have to acknowledge that many people, and perhaps most people, set themselves up as God because I become so important. And so we worship ourselves. That's what the rich young man did when he tore down his barns and built more and said, I've got goods laid up for years to come, so eat, drink, and be merry. Take thine ease. You read that that story, it wasn't a parable, it was an actual story that Jesus gave, and you'll find I, my, and mine just repeated time after time in that, in that story. I, mine, and mine. Consider your conversation, or any conversation you might hear, and how many times does the words I, my, and mine get into the conversation, and what is that but elevating ourselves to a position of supremacy when we call ourselves more important than God. Now, there comes a point in the life of this world as God deals with the people that he has created who set themselves up as supreme, 
who are the mighty eyes, who say my and mine all the time, and who can think of nothing else but what I want and what is mine, and what my selfish ideas are, and what I'm going to do, and what belongs to me, and do nothing but this, God finally gets tired, and he says in verse 24, I'm going to give them up. I've had enough. Let me tell you, the wrath of God can be felt no more than when God gives up on a person. When God finally says, that's it. I'm going to give them up. I am no longer going to try. If they want to live and worship Big Eye, and that's all they're interested in, they don't want anything to do with me. They don't want to serve me. They don't want to worship me. They don't want to accept my son who died on the cross. They don't want to do any of this. And God will never make a person become a Christian. Never make a person accept Christ. Never make a person go to heaven. He will simply say, all right, if that's what you want, I'm going to give you up. And what's he give them up to? Uncleanness. The lusts of their own heart, he says in verse 24. And what are they going to do? They're going to dishonor their own body. They're going to dishonor the very one that they have been worshiping all this time. Give them up. Now the scripture says that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But listen. God being righteous loves on the one hand, but he hates unrighteousness so much on the other that if a person is bent upon living for himself and not for God, he can and does give people up. And don't forget it. He does. And what happens when God gives up? Well, Satan has that person under control in the palm of his hands. There is nothing to keep Satan from ruling and causing that person to do whatever he wants to do. And you will soon discover that that individual on, on whom God gives, that God gives up on is committing and doing every conceivable sin that this world can even begin to think about. And one of the things that he points out particularly is that of sexual sins and most particularly homosexuality. Listen, the homosexuals in this world of ours who claim that they have rights, God has given them up. They're going to live in absolute sin and they're going to hell because God will no longer plead and urge and, and try to win them. They have simply said, I am greater than you, God. Get out of my life and he steps aside. And homosexuality is the pits, the bottom row of sin. God has given up when a person wants to live that kind of life. That's the evidence of Satan's control. Then if you will, go with me down to verse 26 and notice he says something, God gives him up again this time to file affections. There's where he's talking about the homosexuality and so on. Down to verse 28. And God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Reprobate can be translated, God gave them over to an evil mind to do those things which are not proper, is the word meaning convenient there. God gave them up to an evil mind to do those things that are not proper. And then he spends three verses listing those things that people will do when God has given up on them. 
A tremendous list. Unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, de uh, debate. In other words, they want to argue all the time. That's what the word debate means. If you find somebody who can do nothing but argue, and that's their entire life, is to absolutely dispute, 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 you can figure that God has already given up on them. If that's all their life is. Deceit, people that you cannot trust, depend upon. Those who gossip all the time. Those who are absolutely behind somebody's back, biting, 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 biting all the time. You better be sure there is a good question that God has probably already given up and said, you're on your way to hell, I'm no longer going to pay attention to you. And it takes in those, even in the church, who have put up the forefront and the pretense of worshiping Jehovah when it's been mighty eye all the time. Verse 32, to conclude. We started out this, uh, somewhere early in the message by saying that there is very few and probably nobody, but what knows God, knows there is a God, knows there is sin, and knows that there is a punishment for sin. Now verse 32 says, who knowing, that is referring to all these people now that God has given up on, they know the judgment of God. There aren't very many people, if any, but what know that God is going to punish them for their sin. There's nobody in this congregation but what knows he's either gone to heaven or he's gone to hell. Nobody. Now, people know that there's going to be a day of judgment. There are very few people that you can run into, but what know that someday they're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And they're going to be judged. They know that. But what does he say? Even though they know it, they commit those things that are worthy of death. Just continue doing them. Even knowing it. If a person knows that he's lost, if a person knows that he needs to be saved, it's saved from the wrath of God. If a person knows that there is a day of judgment coming, if a person will not accept the reality of it, I don't know what else anyone can do. One who knows the reality of judgment, one who knows the reality of the punishment for sin, one who knows there is a heaven and a hell, and verse 30, 32 says, and continues to do those things worthy of death. And they not only continue to do them, but they take pleasure in those other people who do them. And there's a lot of people who might not do a sin, but sure takes a great delight in watching somebody else do it. There are many people who would never think in terms of getting drunk, but sure can have a lot of fun at the drunkard. There are those who would never think of committing a, a sexual sin, but who will take great delight in reading about Jimmy Swaggart's problem. I wouldn't dare ask how many of you have seen the July copy of the penthouse that has this Jimmy Swaggart story in it. But it's on the newsstand. The only trouble is, I've been told that you can't buy a copy of it. They've all been bought up. 
I didn't try to buy one, but I found that out this week. My point, we can't talk about the person who does sin when we take delight in their sin. Without putting ourselves in the category of those that cause the wrath of God to come from heaven to earth and punish us, when he says that's enough, I'm not going to stand for this. We're God's children who enjoy His love, but we're also God's children who sometimes feel His wrath. Because if we don't do it, sometimes we delight in others doing it, that we might get our kicks, our pleasures from their sin, from their failure. Our job, our purpose as a body of Christian people is to lift up, to encourage and to support not to tear down, not to do those three verses of sins against whom those who do those, the wrath of God may very well come. Shall we pray? Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at james.com sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.